we just thank you for that wonderful testimony of you at work in someone's life, restoring fingertips, bringing to life what we just heard in, in your word. We just pray that you would uh, bring to life further in our hearts what Peter has to say now. Really speak to us, help us to understand more of you. Speak through Peter, give him the words we need to hear. Thank you, Dorian, for ramping up the expectations. <laughs> Can only come downhill from here. Um, so, I mean, in some ways, what I want us to do is just to remember uh, what Dorian just said. Because although what I'm speaking on will have a broader application, it's very easy for us to, in passages like this to go, yeah, but not that bit. And, and I want us to just remember that it's very much that too. So um, it's a privilege, really, to be uh, speaking today because uh, Lynette and I and, and Sam are still very much new kids on the block. Uh, we only moved to Bath in December, pretty much started at uh, St. Matt's in, in January. Um, so St. Matt's was recommended to us, and we haven't tried any other churches. So we're here to stay. And we're loving it, really enjoying it. But um, um, So we are new kids on the block, and we are still just getting to know people. Um, and 31 verses is a rather a big chunk <laughs> to, to speak on in any uh, situation. Uh, so you need to know that I'm not going to be speaking in detail on all 31 verses. You can relax now. Uh, but it would be good if you had the passage in front of you, uh, just so that when I refer to verses and so on, you know where I am. And in fact, I actually have to add to the verses. <laughs> So we've already read 31, uh, Lynette read out to us, so we're going to go back a few verses. And just to get the context, I want to read chapter 9, um, verses 35 to 38. And uh, Jesus said, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So, are you a fitness freak, um, an exercise addict, or a couch potato? Although Lynette instructed me to say couch, carrot, which is nicer than couch potato. But anyway, um, six months ago, oh no, sorry, six months before COVID hit, I was actually in a fairly good routine of going to the gym twice a week. And I don't get too excited about this. It's very much more physiotherapy for me rather than uh, getting really super fit. Uh, I've been through some physiotherapy courses and I've been told to do certain exercises and I was in a good routine but then when lockdown hit, the, the gym closed and it, my routine went. And it was just so easy just to kind of let things slide and become a couch potato again. But some people, of course, because the, one of the few things we were allowed to do outside was exercise, suddenly the streets of Oxford where we were living then were filled with people who were walking and running and jogging. My elder brother is actually a 
pretty well. He's pretty active. He, he's he's happiest. He's kind of addicted to endorphins. He's either mountaineering or he's um, fell running or he's mountain biking. Now, because of my condition, I can't do those sort of things. But it is very easy, isn't it? That when we don't exercise, when we don't keep it up, we kind of slide into a couch potato position again. And spiritually, that's very much true as well, isn't it? So maybe you've heard it said before, but faith is like a muscle which needs both nourishment and exercise. And uh, Lynette told me about a 1980s song, which I actually didn't know until I looked it up recently, by Amy Grant, uh, which describes one half of the equation. And it's called Fat Baby. Has anybody ever heard of this before? No. Okay, well, one verse says, He's been baptized, sanctified, redeemed by the blood, but his daily devotions are stuck in the mud. He knows the books of the Bible and John 3.16. He's got the biggest King James you've ever seen. I've always wondered if he'll grow up someday. He's a mama's boy and he likes it that way. If you happen to see him, tell him I said he'll never grow if he never gets fed. He's just a fat baby. So in the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus attends to the other side of the equation. That the disciples have been feeding from uh, Jesus' teaching for, I don't know, a year by this point. But now is the point where they needed to exercise that faith, to, to, to go to the next level. Put your hand up if you've ever been on a short-term mission, either in this country or overseas. Quite a few of us, that's really good. Well, my first experience of short-term mission was just before going to university in the, uh, the dark and distant land of West Bromwich in the Midlands. And um, it was um, very different from where I grew up in Cheshire because it was very multicultural. And it was a kind of, a, I guess, traditional uh, street evangelism type mission. And I was pretty useless because I was too shy to go up to anyone and talk to people I didn't know. But there was one moment that really changed my life, even if it didn't change the life of the guy that I was talking to. Because um, I got talking to one man, and he said that he was from the Punjab in India. And um, I, we happened to have a, a Gospel of John in Punjabi. And I gave it to him, and he went down the road just reading the Gospel in his language, probably for the first time. That moment changed my life. Because for the last two years, I had been debating daily with my atheist friends since my own conversion and getting absolutely nowhere. Nobody was moving an inch. But here was someone who was actually had never heard the gospel before. And within a couple of weeks, I was at university and my next door neighbor was a Hindu from Sri Lanka. And then we were talking to Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and people from lots of different cultural backgrounds and countries they were not saying, prove it to me. They were saying, so tell me about Jesus. Why is he so important? That little short-term mission stretched my faith and challenged me and changed my life forever. But short-term missions are not a recent invention. What Jesus is doing here is really sending them out on what we now would call a short-term mission. He was sending them out to do the things that they'd seen him do, that they'd maybe participated in, but now he was sending them out without him bodily, 
but with his authority and with his spirit. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all report that this was a time when just 12 disciples or apostles uh, were sent out to the lost sheep of Israel, that is to the Jews only. But the Gospel of Luke also describes a second short-term mission where the 70 or 72 people uh, from a wider group of disciples went without restrictions of who to share the kingdom with. And actually, these are two parts of a whole because 12 and 70 or 72 are kind of Bible code for two groups of people. 12 represents God's people, so that's the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 disciples. And 70 is the number of nations in Genesis chapter 10. So that represents the nations of the world. So these numbers together give us a figurative picture of the Great Commission, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, and then on to Samaria and the ends of the earth. But although Matthew's gospel doesn't record this, the sending of the 70, he, what Matthew is doing, or rather, Jesus is rather Matthew's using Jesus' words to describe the Great Commission. So the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 19, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Because in verse um, 5 and 6, we can see it specifically to the Jews. But then later in verse 18, Jesus seems to be describing something much greater than that, speaking of the future. You see, one of the difficulties of these passages sometimes is working out which aspects of the teaching is for then and which is for us today. Are we to tell people about the kingdom of God? Absolutely, yes. Are we to heal the sick and cast out demons? Absolutely, yes. Are we to go on mission with only one shirt? Well, if I did that, I think... It wouldn't be the fragrance of Jesus that would prevent, that, would be, that people would notice first off. It would be something else. But passages like this are actually a little bit like this um, picture, 2D picture of this one, of a mountain, uh, rather a tree with mountains in the background. In two dimensions, they look pretty much the same size, but we know that in three dimensions, they are of course, part of a bigger picture. They are, the, the, the tree is small and in the foreground and the mountain is large and in the background. So here in this passage, we've got the, the tree, which is the 12 disciples going to just the Jews. And we've got the mountain in the background, which is the much larger Great Commission from Matthew 28, verse 19. But they're part of the same picture. Now, I have to say, I don't normally come up with three points all beginning with the same letter, but I have done today. And so for three points we have today, I really don't do this very often, but it's practice, preparation, and promise. So first of all, let's talk about the practice. Now, these days we're familiar, I mean, with kinesthetic uh, teaching techniques. We learn by doing. Most of us like to learn by doing, and this is really what Jesus is doing here. He's teaching his followers and getting them to do themselves what they'd seen him do. Now, these men would be the apostles. These men listed in verses 2 to 4, they would lead the church. They would lead the church in the Great Commission, but they had to start somewhere. 
when I was uh, much younger, I told my pastor that I believed that I was called into Christian ministry. And he didn't comment on that directly. What he said was, right, you and me, Saturday nights, you're coming with me, and we're going to reach out to the kids on the streets who are hanging around and the housing estates in the center of town. And every Saturday night, that's what we did with a group of others. He taught me by showing me, by getting me involved. You see, I wonder whether you think that you read this passage and you read the bits about raising the dead and healing the sick and you kind of think, yeah, that was for then, it's not for me now. But the problem there is really because that is rather far from most of our experience. We've never done it. Most of us probably haven't even prayed for one person to receive healing. But it has to start somewhere. You know, God is doing so many wonderful things in the world. But just because we don't see it right here, right now, doesn't mean to say it's not happening. We're not really in revival conditions here in Britain at the moment. But a few decades ago, Mozambique had hardly any Christians. And then over the last few decades, they've had a huge revival. There are thousands of churches being planted. And many, many people are receiving healing. People being healed from blindness, even if they were born blind. And well-attested um, examples of raising from the dead. I wonder how many of us have heard of Couch to 5K. Anybody done Couch to 5K? <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, Couch to 5K. Lynette has done it. And um, I haven't. And I know that the principle of it is that you start really from nothing and you build it up slowly until you're running five kilometers. Lynette and I were talking about me doing a Couch to 5M, which is more my style. Um, it works because it's doable. And in the same way, exercising our faith has to start small. It has to start somewhere. These disciples had already been with Jesus for a year or so. And this, as I said, the, the casting out of demons and the healing of the sick and so forth, they'd seen many times. They'd probably participated many times. This time they were on their own. We, most of us are starting much further back. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever prayed for a non-Christian friend or relative in their presence? Some of us are nodding, some of us are looking blank. But actually, I was doing this as part of a, a training seminar on reaching international students. And I suggested this because um, you're probably aware that there are some, so we're in international student ministry and there are uh, events going on regularly at a couple of churches in the city. And, I was, and so people in the seminar were regularly in contact with international students on a week-by-week -week basis. I said, why don't you offer to pray with someone? Maybe pray for healing or pray for their concerns about their parents back home or, or their worries about accommodation or money. One question I had back was, but what if God doesn't answer the prayer? I kind of thought, really? Are we... You know, do we have such little faith in our Father God that we dare not offer to pray for someone in case God embarrasses himself and doesn't actually answer? I think we need to know that our Father God loves to answer our prayers and he loves to, to, to um, reveal himself to those who are seeking. 
So this practice is also preparation. Short-term mission trip here in Matthew 10 was a way of preparing the disciples for greater things. And in verses 9 and 10, he tells them not to bring any gold or silver or copper, uh, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. Well, why not? What is that about? What is, it's like saying, uh, Peter, when you go to Newcastle University to do a mission, uh, don't bring your wallets, don't bring your phone, don't bring a change of clothes and only have half a tank of petrol. It just doesn't make sense. But Jesus asked them to do that because part of what they were learning was not just to trust God to heal people, but to trust God for their own physical needs. So my second experience of short-term mission a couple of years after West Bromwich was on the other side of the world in the Philippines. And I did a a kind of month of uh, internship with a Filipino pastor. And it was a wonderful time, and I don't have time to go into that. But one of the things I really learned from that experience was to trust God for what I really needed. We had no money for the airfares, and that came through miraculously. That's a a story for another time. But on the way home, I needed to get from the outlying district where I was to take an internal flight back to Manila, then cross the city to the mission home where I'd be debriefed stay overnight, and then fly home. But as I was about to get on the aeroplane to go to Manila, I suddenly realized that I had spent all my money. And I had zero local money to get a cab across the city, and I had no way of doing it. So I simply had to come and ask God, help. But as soon as I sat down on the plane to get uh, on that internal flight, there was a tap on my shoulder. And the lady said, I recognize you from the church that you visited. Uh, and then without me seeing anything else, she said, um, my nephew's picking me up from the airport. He has a car. He'll take you wherever you want to go. I came home from that month with my faith massively built up and increased. I allowed the Holy Spirit to put me in a situation where I needed to depend on him. And the Lord had been faithful. Now, for about a quarter of a century, Lynette and I have needed to depend on the Lord for uh, income because we work for a mission agency and we don't have a, uh, we're paid, but only because people uh, support us. We have had to depend on the faithfulness of God for a quarter of a century, but it had to start somewhere. And it started when the Lord took us out of our comfort zone and stretched our faith. I hope you see what I'm saying. That we learn to depend on God in small ways first, and he leads us beyond our comfort zone again and again until our faith is built up, sometimes suddenly, sometimes incrementally. Then from verse 11 onwards, Jesus also prepares them for the fact that they would have a mixed response. Some people would be open to their message. Other people would be not only apprehensive but against hostile against the message they needed to know that their heavenly father was reliable not just for provision but also protection however if you read the rest of the chapter the protection that jesus guarantees is not exactly what you would call comprehensive cover in fact jesus starts 
in verse 16 saying, I'm sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Not the kind of thing that you think a good shepherd would say to his sheep. And yet Jesus seems to find no contradiction in saying, both in verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. In other words, you just might die. And verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. <laughs> he seems to be saying, you might just get killed, but that's okay. You might just get killed, but that's okay because ultimately it doesn't matter. You know, sometimes when I see my friends getting injured playing sports, I rather naughtily say, yeah, clearly exercise is bad for your health. But of course, the reality is that having no exercise is much worse for your health. You know, playing racquetball might break your arm, but being a couch potato risks heart disease and a stroke. Stretching our faith will involve risk. But Jesus is saying that no matter what risks we might face, there is a cast iron guarantee that he will be with us. That we, he will be with us and we will be with him for eternity. Therefore, it is spiritually more dangerous to do nothing than to risk everything for the kingdom of heaven. Let me say that again. Spiritually, it is more dangerous to do nothing than to risk everything for the kingdom of heaven. Because the person who risks nothing may just find out that their faith was not authentic to begin with. Because faith that does not change us is no faith at all. And finally, promise, which really is an overlapping point. I've already said some of this, but for all that Jesus sends us out as sheep amongst wolves, he tells us to not be afraid. And we know that in Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus gives this last command to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And in verse 20, he promises, and surely I am with you even to the end of the age. I don't really know what God will be calling you and me to do. He may call you and me to do what Dorian said earlier on. He may call you and me to go overseas or not. But the, the important point is actually to listen and obey to trust and obey. That if we obey, then we can trust that whatever we face, we already have the better thing. We already have the reward. There's nothing that we can be, nothing that can happen to us that can separate us from the love of God. As, um, as a Palestinian Christian in Gaza once said, we are bulletproof until our work is done. Well, maybe in Bath we don't need to be bulletproof. We just need to know that when we step out in faith and do the next thing, Jesus is going to be right there with us. But the heart of the passage really is the end of verse 8, where Jesus says, freely you have received, freely 
give. Freely you have received means that we have experienced the incredible, life-changing love of Jesus. Freely we have received his forgiveness and his inner cleansing. Freely we have received that freedom from inside that the Holy Spirit gives. Freely we have received the, we've tasted that incredible presence of Jesus. You know, Peter, who, who was one of those disciples who was uh, sent out years later, even though he'd seen Jesus, he'd been with Jesus, he'd spent all that time with Jesus, years later he writes to people like you and me who have not seen Jesus face to face, and he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We have received that. To therefore freely give is the logical outworking of receiving the grace and love of Jesus. But if we're really honest, there's a bit of a disconnect. If we really have received freely, then surely this sort of stuff would be automatic. The reason I think it's not is that we sometimes lack the faith to see what we have freely received. So therefore, I would suggest that actually when we freely give, actually the Lord is closer and, and reveals himself and so therefore we can see much more clearly what it is that we have received. It becomes a positive feedback cycle. cycle. Whereas we take that step of trust to do the next thing, whatever the next thing is, then we experience his love and his grace and his presence much more powerfully, which in turn makes us want to give more. So what might freely giving look like for us? When I was a young believer, there were people who spent time with me one-to-one. And as I've been thinking about this this week, I've been challenged to do that more for other people. I wonder if ever, you, it's been a long time also, maybe perhaps since you've encouraged someone, or maybe it's been a long time since you shared the gospel with someone, or maybe you've never shared your testimony with someone. So maybe the, that's where you're at. It's the couch two bit starting out. Or maybe you're a bit further on than that, actually, but it's been a long time since you prayed for someone or prayed for someone for healing. Maybe it's time to do the next thing. Maybe it's time to get out of our comfort zone and open up our homes to people that we would not normally associate with. People on the street, perhaps, who we've never really got to know. For others, it may be intentionally seeking opportunities to share with people at work. Or maybe it, maybe it starts with serious, in-depth, intentional, intercessory prayer. But I want to finish by asking ourselves these four questions. And I don't, wanna, I don't know how we want to do this. Maybe we just want to think or talk together. Maybe this is something we want to discuss. Maybe let's do that. Let's, let's discuss. So these are the four questions I want us to ask ourselves. What can we do that will challenge and stretch our faith from where we are now? Who 
can we go with? Because one thing that doesn't come out in this passage here, but in the equivalent passages in the other Gospels, is that the disciples went out in twos. And I think that's an important point to make. It's so hard to do these things on our own because we can say what we like, but we don't ever end up doing it. And also you can cover each other in prayer. You can become accountability partners, whether it may be your husband or wife or another friend of the same gender. Who can we go with? Thirdly, what's our timeline? We don't like the, the word deadline, but unless we actually determine to do something, say, by September, then we won't end up doing anything at all. And pray. For some of us here, you know exactly what God is asking you to do. As soon as I started talking, you know, you thought, yep, okay, I know what God is asking me to do next. For others, it may be a complete mystery, but that's okay. Because as we pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into his harvest field, we find ourselves becoming part of the answer to that prayer. So freely we have received, how will we freely give? So discuss maybe in more than twos, maybe threes and fours, and then I'll pray at the end.